Climate mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth and came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for profit companies get involved. In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions, getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it. Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that. Thus, Climate Mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, Ty. Bessie Schwartz is the co-founder and CEO of Cloud to Street, a service that provides flood tracking for disasters and insurance worldwide. If you know it, but 1.5 billion people face flood risk today. Cloud to Street also helped introduce a new term to our vocabulary this season, climate adaptation. What is that exactly? Well, listen and you'll learn. So Bessie began her career in the field as a community organizer, where she saw the impact of flooding on vulnerable communities. She then went on to get a master's at Yale and started Cloud to Street actually while being there. Now, Ty, why were you blown away by Bessie as a founder? Bessie is a really impressive human being. She is not only ridiculously smart, but the problem that she is super passionate about is one of the biggest problems that I didn't really understood existed to the level that they did and that they're tackling. The other thing is this company kind of proves out our thesis this year. This is a for-profit company, which Bessie is incredibly passionate about. That is how she structures this company. And they are making money and doing things, big things today. So really, really impressive company, really, really impressive founder. And I think you all are going to learn something amazing from them, just like I did. So stay tuned, stick with us. You're going to love it. I learned a lot too. And we're going to dive deep into What's parametric flood insurance and what makes it sexy? What is the real impact Cloud to Street has had the past seven years? And finally, what the hell is ClaFi and why should you care? Mayhem on, brother. Mayhem on, Jacob. Oh, and real quick, we needed to add that since we've done this interview, Cloud to Street has actually changed their name. They're now called Floodbase. So, of course, we called them Cloud to Street during the chat. But when you Google them, search for Floodbase instead. That's one word. Enjoy. Bessie, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here. I thought we'd kick it off with 
talking a little bit about what uh what Neil Stevenson book did you read recently? Did I hear that you read one of these recently? Yeah, so I well I did read Snow Crash for the first time recently, and then I started his new climate change book, his cli-fi book, uh, which is good. But I just I really do think Ministry of the Future, the one we were just talking about, like, t- takes the cake. I I just loved that book, and I found it actually really useful to think about. Uh, you know, it's set in near future, a couple a couple decades mm. from now, but how the world could be different if yeah, how if like the work that we're working on at Cloud to Street were successful, how those chapters mm. all change. Interesting. Would you mind summarizing what that book is about for the audience? Oh yeah. It's a really expansive book. Yeah. But it's so Cli-Fi in general, I think as a sort of climate science fiction, uh, is nice. a sort of genre that looks at the somewhat near future, but in a climate affected world. So fairly not wow. super fictiony there. <laughs> and and you know, Kim Stanley Robinson, I think really one of the great science fiction writers of, of our time here, um also interesting sort of a Marxist uh, kind of PhD in political theory, he basically takes an extremely wide like, big breath at all of the elements that will break down in the face of mm. climate change. Uh, from mm. the very personal, a lot of every chapter, it's one of those books where every chapter is different. And there's a couple of mm-hmm. characters who have threads or in several of them. And so it's everything about how it breaks down in very specific ways, massive flood in Los Angeles, a huge heat wave in, in India, how financial systems break down, governments break down. And then it starts to show a, in a very widespread way, the opposite of how we have to and can overhaul various systems everywhere from how war breaks out and then how terrorism adjusts wow. and changes wow. yeah. to how central banks can change currency in order to mm. adjust or incentivize investments in climate mitigation or clean energy and everywhere from adaptation plans. India is like a big hero in in, in the book <laughs> and it pioneers a lot of agricultural the climate resilient agriculture. So mm. it's really widespread. I frankly learned about a lot of solutions I, I didn't know about. And I, I just started listening to the book. It got me thinking about things that I never even thought about when a temperature could get so hot in a city that you're like, oh, I have to think about putting a generator on a roof instead of in a street because someone would, could want to take that generator to then power their own ac right oh, like all, all these yeah. all these little things are like the temperature of a lake to cool your body actually a, a water absorbs a ton of heat like at nighttime if you try to go take a swim it's actually warmer than you think like it can absorb a lot of heat like that's it's fascinating i will we'll link that in the show notes too bessie I, I thought we could now go into oh well so you guys have a cli-fi book club is that right before we we do yeah yeah at cloud the street very yeah. cool okay there should be more of those i maybe like more maybe more cl- oh, yeah, okay. i like it's it too so wild yeah it's really fun to think about so we read um we actually have to do with the ministry of the future is a pretty big book so we had to break it into a couple of uh couple of book reading sections right but it it inspires different ideas at the you know at the company yeah yeah and we really we really encourage folks here to kind of think like about various things that may not have anything to do with climate adaptation or the particular work that, that we mm. do focus on flooding here at Cloud to Street, um, but really see ourselves as part of a broader movement when it comes to climate change. Yeah. 
Bessie, what is it? Can you tell us what it what does it mean to be a community organizer? We heard, we read that you're this is in training and at heart you can you identify yeah. as this. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I think when I said that I really meant two things. I meant both in terms of how I think about what we call broadly as power building within the company. And then the second, really like how I think about building a business itself. So managing resources, growing resources, developing people. So I guess I'll start. The second one's a little bit more tangible. So an organizer's job, one of the first things you're taught is to organize, that your job is to organize yourself out of the job. You Hmm. are intended to kind of be in a community or work with a company or in an economy. And the point is to understand kind of where power lies. So how power is functioning within a system, whether it's political, it's brand, it's capital. And then how can you bring together a collection of those resources, namely people power, in order to change those power dynamics in, in, mm. in some way? So you're really coming mm-hmm. into a situation that you're probably an outsider in with very little to offer other than helping people organize and, and kind of redirect power in many ways. And so that's why your job is to, in many ways, just come into the situation, change the system, and then get out. And so very mm. kind of on the second Starting a business, it's interesting because I remember when my co-founder and I, who her background is in disaster relief work, which has different but somewhat interesting parallels in what I'm about to say, we're like, of course, we'd have no resources when starting a business. Like, of course, we have nothing to offer. <laughs> right. Like, what we can sort of build from yeah, here. Nice. And and it's really about empowering the people within the the company, what what their sort of their expertise, their resources, their skill sets, and then organizing ourselves out of whatever the particular job is that we're doing at the moment. So having other people take over, and it's really about leadership development um, within the company. And so that's how we kind of have thought about running a business. And I, there's mm-hmm. very few of my, there's very little crossover between some of the folks that I did organizing with back in, back in the day in the sort of startup world that I'm you know, really feel you know, part of now. But I really think there's a lot of strong skill sets you learn there. But on, on the, the first thing, which I think is a little bit of a broader point of thinking about community organizers' perspective on power building, you know, as I was mentioning, a community organizer really comes into a situation and says not just, okay, why is this situation, why is this problem not resolved? Why is there this market gap? Or why is this community not getting what they need in this moment? You don't just ask that. You ask, what is the system of power around this community that they didn't get their needs or rights met? this time, the next time. And then yeah. how do I change that larger, more systemic dynamic? And um, climate change is in many ways a kind of a large version of this. You know, the the things that created this crisis, the companies, the fossil fuel industry that created it is not going to suffer the most in, in many ways. And so we have to look at the system of power around it. And Cloud Street really is a, a systemic change company and what we're doing Mm. with really fixing in many ways one very small niche problem of access to high quality information around climate disasters primarily flooding we think is really just a catalyst to rebalancing power primarily around Mm. access not just access to information but primarily access to capital to adapt to coming disasters and disasters as they hit Super interesting. And we'll get we'll get into that later with the reinsure market and how that works. Yeah. Changing power dynamics between people sounds pretty dang hard. How do you go about doing <laughs> that? Is there a, like a playbook, like a principles that you follow? 
Yeah, it looks different in many different ways. And I think it depends on where you're where you're you're looking. So if that's so it's just take like a very straightforward political economy example, it looks like you could use sort of democratic voting rights in a world in which there's a really high quality functioning democracy. Mm-hmm. It looks like um, building up a political will, demonstrating that political will and all the kind of classic ways you would say. There, in other ways, it might be changing the brand of a fossil fuel company or changing the brand around, let's say, electric cars or something, mm-hmm. which would that affect the purchasing sort of dynamics of mm-hmm. those industries. That can be incredibly powerful. And I think over the very long period of time that I've been working on climate change, that has changed dramatically mm-hmm. from sort of what's just seen as from a consumer basis attractive. And like you see huge, like some of the biggest companies in the world now who have to brand themselves friendly to to climate and and, and not um, adverse to it. And that when I started my career was really like a nice to have, if not in even some ways, like giving into environmental activists, if you're saying you're going to be climate neutral, like Mm. in some ways a negative thing. And Mm -hmm. I'd say it's going even further than that on kind of the brand power around climate now, which is that people really understand what greenwashing is more and more and have a, I'd say the general public is just getting, I think, more astute about, you know, what is kind of BS climate mitigation or sequestration and has like sort of this sort of smart, ask smart questions around is that, is that new forest that was just planted actually additive or was it clear cut yesterday so that you could replant those here? So folks are really asking questions. And so kind of brand intangible power and, you know, how you generate that. And it's much more around marketing than um, some of the other things. The way that we've, I've really been thinking about it most recently is in terms of access to capital. It might sound mm-hmm. like the most straightforward version of power, but you know the reality is if you look at a, take an example of a country that really needs to adapt to, to climate change. So take, so take, take Barbados or so. So an, an mm-hmm. island country really needs to make and knows it needs to make massive investments right now in order to protect its shorelines against increased disasters that money has to be borrowed more mm-hmm. or less like you, the money of that size but as disasters get more intense there creditworthiness goes goes down for a country like that sure. so you're stuck in sure. this kind of catch 22 and if you're a developing nation and you can't have you're going to have less access to capital and less of an ability to um access it and so those kinds of how how money flows within the system i think very much needs to change. So there's, I think, a lot that we can do around financing in order to just be able to survive the next really 10 to 20 years. Super interesting. Yeah. Uh, has climate change affected your life so far or how has it, if so, either through the work that you did in community organizing or like personally, what, what have you seen? I mean, it's affected all of our lives, but in very, very different ways. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I want to be, I want to be really clear that, uh, you know, this problem will affect those who are already the most vulnerable mm. in this country and, and certainly internationally. So well, some, some research that we've actually at Cloudy Street have done on that. But yeah, I started my career actually working with young people in Florida, mostly coastal Florida, helping those communities, really young people who knew that they were likely going to have to move where their family had been for generations uh, because of wow. a problem that they were just born into. And, and you know, I'm in touch with many of them still, and some of them have, have had to to move or had to look for wow. kind of other 
other opportunities else, elsewhere. And then I've worked with like, farming communities in the Midwest or or mm. low-income communities in the Northwest as well, kind of close to where, to where you all are, who, mm-hmm. who actually were in some ways getting priced out of a clean energy economy. And so I've worked with wow. some low-income communities who just were being either forced to change their homes for around energy efficiency, but couldn't afford those changes. And so oh, we, were, we were making sure that there was enough money. But yeah, I, I'll say that, you know, the the when it comes to kind of vulnerability around it, you really just follow, I think, the normal vulnerability dynamics within the country or and globally. So we did this study at Cloud of Street a couple of years ago now that looked at which communities would experience the most death or property damage in the face of a of a yeah, hurricane. Super yeah. Interesting. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways it's super interesting, and also like, oh yeah, this right of course, here, that's the case. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, I always saw the color palette on that map. I before. liked it. Yeah, yeah. And so you're like, oh wow, look at that there. And then you're like, yeah, that completely makes sense. It's like minority communities uh, and generally mm. like women, women-held households that are going to are going to get uh, experience the most loss, and we're talking mm. pretty severely, including loss of life. So basically what this what you're showing here, if a five hundred year flood were to hit the entire country, every uh, inch of the country all at once, which parts would see the most damage oh, and death? So it sort of couldn't like controls for the intensity of the event. Yeah, the patterns are pretty pretty clear. Yeah. I, this was super yeah. interesting. Even the description of the profile of the patterns of the people that would be affected the most, I thought was, was extra interesting. And then the heavy on the fatalities in Texas and, and then it was really, you, you call it the Bible belt, right? Isn't that like right here? Yeah. 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 Wow. Interesting. And so the communities that you were working with in Florida, I hadn't, I hadn't heard this part, but were they being forced to move because of flooding? Yeah. So it was, I was working just with young people. So it was, it was um, mostly campus uh, work. Oh, there. interesting. And mostly it was people who Floridians in on college campuses who are thinking about their future in college saying, okay, what do yeah. I, or where am I going? What am I, what am I doing next? And, you know, and thinking like, we need to act, this is, we, we need to act on climate because my community that I'm coming from is, is not prepared for it. And does the, wow. do I look like, do I feel like I have a future here? And these were, these were mostly lower income yeah. or middle income students. So I wanted to explore this a little bit of like, you started in this idea of climate change. You've been passionate about this, working in this for a long time, but you use a bit of a different word, different terminology at Cloud to Street. And it was important for me to understand because we've been talking to a you know a fair number of folks who are trying to do something to impact climate change, this future mitigation, if you will. But yeah. you guys use a lot a term a lot more than just climate change. You talk about climate adaptation. So yeah. how did you make this? shift, if you will, and, and what, what does that mean? Yeah, so climate adaptation uh, is basically the recognition recognition that climate is here now and affecting us, our personal lives, our livelihoods, our economies, our governments, our businesses, and we need to address, re- increase our ability to absorb the loss that is just here now. If you, it's according to NOAA, even if we were to stop emitting greenhouse gases tomorrow, the planet would continue to warm for 10 to 20 years. So even if when all of my fantastic colleagues leading other Mm -hmm. innovations and and companies 
are fully successful in going mm. carbon neutral, we still have massive amounts of changes that are already baked in. And wow. we have to address them now if we're even going to get to that future right. that, that sort of we're, we're, we're planning for. But in some ways, that sounds scarier. We at Cloudist Street think that's inc actually incredibly hopeful because um, the fact of the matter is we have the solutions now. So we actually have the data. I mean, we're getting better, better at understanding, getting more granular with climate projections, but we have the data certainly on disasters that are happening now and the near future. So the next couple of decades and how that change is going to happen. We have the data now, and then we have the decisions, the planning decisions, the response decisions mm. and the financial instruments like mm. insurance, like certain forms of debt. We have these financial instruments that they've been working for centuries. So in many ways, it's more hopeful to me than, you know, some, Interesting. Yeah. you know, hopeful new thing that's going to suck carbon out of the atmosphere that, you know, some of that stuff will work and some of it and some of it won't. But we sure. know this stuff can work, is working now through the existing systems in our economy. So before I dig into the data a tiny bit more, because you, you made a statement of like, we have the data now, but arguably you guys have the data because it's it's out there, <laughs> but it's huge and it's been there. But why flooding? Like we're talk to, I, we haven't really touched on this subject. Why flooding? Why, why are you guys focused there? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question because it's very clear. So flooding is the biggest climate disaster, full stop. In terms wow. of the number of people, the amount of the economy, GDP exposed is actually more than half of all exposure, meaning you kind of stack the risk from fires and landslides and droughts mm -hmm. all on top, and it doesn't equal the threat of flooding. Wow. And that's because flooding is so widespread. You really find it um, in, in, in every country as a sort of major. And it could come in the form of, you know, just floods sort of with what's called sunny day flooding that's just happening more and more across Florida, actually, as sea level rises and water table goes mm. up. It could be like um, what we just saw hit Florida, really honing in a lot on Florida here, but the kind yeah. of disruption that we just saw in Ian or a, a third of Pakistan actually being underwater mm. uh, from a massive event. So these are happening more and more. And we really decided to address flooding because it was clearly the biggest from the hazard side. Uh, when my co-founder and I came, got together about 10 years ago to start working on this problem, it was also quite clear that flooding, because of how the phenomena operates, we actually understand it a lot less than other mm. slower moving, kind of wider, <laughs> physically wider hazards. It's a very peculiar, and it also comes in many forms, sea surge, river reef. Wow, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I that's think really interesting because I, I actually would have thought we do understand flooding like a river's there and all of a sudden the it comes over the bank because it rained a whole lot over there. I mean, I, I'm way oversimplifying, but if I, that statement is interesting to me because I feel like we do. I thought we did, but we don't. Yeah, we definitely know some things like water definitely runs downhill. But um, <laughs> right. that, and I'll say like patterns of flooding before in a particular area will generally follow true, but any individual okay. flood event, it could be that it rained for really intensely for two hours and that created it. Or maybe wow. it just rained not that bad, but for you know five days straight over here and maybe the some change in the urban landscape around the river you were just talking about is redirecting water, not in a right. great way, but is redirecting it 
10 feet to the left, which means it's not going to affect this side of the street, it'll affect that side of the street. So there's a lot of dynamics and the local, the local aspect of flooding, I think also is something that folks think about all that much because, you know, it could be in that example, it could be flooding in a really damaging way on one side of the street and not on the other. Interesting. Well, then you also talked about in another talk that you had around, it also took a one community three weeks to understand an area was flooding and just the the kind of archaic nature. I don't want to say archaic. I know you don't love that term. We've had a lot of science. We've had a lot of people on the ground yeah. trying to measure this and understand this in as close to real time as possible, but it hasn't been. And so I guess I want to use that to, as a jumping off point to the origin story of Cloud to Street and how you guys do it differently. Yeah, well, I'll just jump off that example you you were using there. That was the the Congo, actually. So mm-hmm. they uh, came to us because many years ago, because um, they had a not even that big of a flood in the northern part of the country, but it had um, caused like about five thousand people to be uh, somewhat stranded, and it was um, disrupting some import. But yeah, it took three weeks to know that this had wow. happened and that it was it was this, causing this disruption and. You know, while that's, I would say, on the more extreme end, if you look at, uh, you know, even the U.S. here, I think access to comprehensive information about when a disaster is happening, how bad is it, is it even a large disaster, but it's affecting or disrupting a large economy, getting that kind of information is paramount for acting quickly enough to reduce loss in the in the moment, um, yeah. but it's pretty hard. So just taking, continuing with this example, we came in about a year later after that event, and rather than having a basically a gauge base, so there was a um, sort of piece of ground equipment that says how high the, the rivers are, we set up the kind of flipped it on its head and was doing an all remote based approach where we were actually just monitoring the entire country every single day, every part of it to scan for any kind of unusual waters. There's something beyond where water we would normally expect and went from you know three weeks to um, about a day to know if an wow. event is is happening, and yeah, we're really excited. We're actually going on. I think it's like the fifth fifth year or so that we're now have had the system um, operating in that in that country. Yeah, amazing. And you're doing this with satellites. You're basically taking in all of this data from satellites every day, you know, and and crunching it up, doing the heavy lifting, and making it accessible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what we actually do is leverage about 17 different types of satellites, some that are circling the earth every day, some you got to put in place when you need it. We're ingesting that all the time. And we've got algorithms that combine the imagery together and detect water at the pixel, individual pixel level. Okay. What of that is permanent water? What of that is water that we would expect to be there every other year, every five years? Okay. What's, you know, beyond that. And then what is being affected by that? So we essentially take all of that in and in some ways map that flood. And we can do that globally. All of our algorithms are fully global. You actually have to have that much data in order to get to the level of quality that you need. Okay. But then we actually also use other forms of data um, as well. And while satellites are really, in, in some ways, we the front line or the, the backbone of this technology because it's direct observation of what's happening, um, you know, flood maps or satellites can't see everything. They're either not there at that moment or they're obscured by a cloud or they, you know, they can't uh-huh, see something because uh-huh. the 
because the um, shadow of a of a mountain actually looks quite a bit like a cloud in a satellite. Interesting. Image. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so we use a lot of other um, data from the ground that'll be kind of IoT, so we can get it sort of streaming mm. online, crowdsourcing, news scraping, and we feed all of this other information into the model too, in order to fill in gaps synthetically between the direct um, observation. Uh, and so we get a complete monitoring picture of what's happening now in near real time, anywhere in the world, and then can then run that back in time to understand on any given day, uh, either directly through observation or through these interpolated maps, what was flooded 25 years ago, 30 years ago, and then what's therefore likely to happen in the next couple of decades. Taking from that informative data to predictive data, where you can, that other spectrum where you can really start to be prescriptive about that. So talk to us exactly. a little bit about the business of cloud to street. You've, you mentioned a customer or it sounds like a user, this, a country of Congo. Yeah. Um, that's super interesting. But then you've also talked about, you know, these other powers that this data can, can power, which is, you know, these financial tools. Talk to us about the business. What, what is the business of cloud to street? How do you guys do this? Yeah, so we have two main market segments that we focus on. And the first is insurance. So this is insurers, reinsurers, and brokers, primarily through something we call uh, parametric uh, insurance, in mm. which the insurer uses the satellite detection of a flood through what I just described in order to issue the payout, which means mm. that they can offer this anywhere where our map is live, which is everywhere. everywhere. So it really breaks open what can be insurable. We're really expanding about today about only about 30% of flood losses are actually covered by insurance. And so this breaks wow. open a huge amount of um, other types of risk and people and places around the world, expands the, the, the market share of flood insurance quite a bit. And we, our business models, we would take a percentage of the premium for any policy. And so it's a Really, mm -hmm. we're opening up this market for insurers and keep generating a lot more value, and then they're keeping most of that value. So you touched on this. I'd like to dig into what's the difference in parametric insurance than the insurance any of us might know? Yeah. Okay. It's really fundamentally different. The The customer would understand, experience some of the difference, but it really is how the product is designed. So there's really two elements of insurance, right? There's you getting the payout, your home is damaged or your you know, city, your state, your, your country is experiencing disaster. So that is verified. There is an event and you get a payout. That's the first part is how you trigger mm -hmm. that. People fly filing claims all across the board right now. The second mm -hmm. is how you actually price that, how the insurer comes up with the number that the premium you're going to pay every year mm -hmm. in order to get the potential payment out if it the event were to happen. So those are really the two components. What parametric insurance does is make both of those kind of happen through this external data source. And what I mean by that is instead of having a field adjuster come to your house or assess mm -hmm. a damage manually, we ensure the event happening based on some kind of data proxy. Ah. So yeah. When we map there's an event, it is automatically said, okay, this event is a qualifying event. Payment is issued, sort of triggered automatically. And it's really interestingly, you're not actually being insured against damage. You're not even really being insured against the event happening. 
you're being insured against this equation, this data proxy huh. saying, okay, we've reached this uh, trigger Threshold. threshold. Yeah. And then, so that's how that sort of the trigger of the payment works with it. Yeah. It's remote can happen automatically. And then we just take that data proxy, the flood detection and run it back in time to create a probabilistic curve that you can then price the premium on top. So it's really kind of all one joint thing. Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. 